Our scripture this morning is Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that you may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh... Our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is the word of the Lord. This Tuesday is uh, Veterans Day, and I uh, want to acknowledge those of you who have served us and our country so well. And so if you're here today and you're a veteran of our armed services and have served to preserve what we enjoy today, would you stand so we could just say thank you this morning for your service? pray together. Oh, Holy Spirit, we ask you now to use the Word of God, Romans 7, a text that you inspired to glorify the name of Christ and to serve as food for believers who live in a world that's dark and filled with many temptations and many trials, and we need a word from God today. So we need you to make words on a page and words through a human mouth to be our food. And that at the end we might be so in love with Jesus, whose name you desire to glorify, that we would leave this place ready to share the beautiful story of the gospel in the world. Or for some today who hearing this text will be strangely moved, eyes will be opened, and today they will be converted. So we ask for your work now, please, Spirit, because we need your help to see this text clearly. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most important transitions that happens in life is the movement from being a child to becoming an adult. In the middle of that transition in life, there's a change in relationship between the child and the parent. As a child grows more and more into maturity, if, if you've raised children, you know what I'm talking about. If 
you're in the middle of that zone with teenagers, you know the challenge of that. And if your kids are young, there's coming a day when life will not always be about rules and what you should or should not do. There will be a day when you say no hitting or say thank you or please eat all of your broccoli. That relationship changes, though, when it's supposed to. That, that boundary-setting role is not supposed to be permanent, which is why if you're 25 years old and you have a bunch of your friends over to your house, and as you get up from your table, your mom says, wait a minute, you haven't cleaned your plate, that's rather embarrassing. Because when you're 25, your mom's not supposed to ask you if you brushed your teeth before you went to bed. That role is supposed to change. There's supposed to be a greater freedom that comes with a child-embracing Obedience from the inside out. So that relationship is to change between being just a rule enforcement sort of model to being a wisdom enablement sort of model. About once a week, I take one of my children out to breakfast and we use that time to have conversations about life and recently was responding to a number of questions that my um, one of our twins was asking me about life and how do, you, how do you think as an adult? And so he, he had this list, and so he started asking me these questions. And one after another, my answer kept really being the same thing. I said, yeah, you, you just kind of figure that one out. He's like, really? I said, yeah, yeah, it's kind of a gray area. And he's like, okay, the next one. And about the fourth one, after I had said that four times in a row, he, he looked at me like, do you even know what you're doing? And, and, I, and I leaned in and I said, hey, bud, the dirty little secret is your mom and I don't know what we're doing. So it's, and no parent knows what we're doing. It's just a game, a facade that we act like we know what we're doing, right? And then as teenagers, you're like, wait a minute, do you really know what you're doing? And then you leave the house and you're like, they knew exactly what they were doing. It's amazing how wise my dad got when I turned 25. I just can't believe how he grew so much in five years. So, so what is maturity? Maturity is the ability to make the right decisions for the right reason. And every parent longs for that in the hearts of your kids. To not have to define all of the rules. Because you can't make enough rules fast enough to, to address all the needs in life or the changing culture around you. And, and what I'm talking about in terms of maturity is not just a parental issue. It's how maturity works in every arena of life and even when it comes to spiritual maturity. Pastors and parents wrestle with the same question, which is this. How do we help motivate people to do what is right? How do I help you to know what to do in the world in which you live? How do we help you so that righteousness happens, not because of a fear of penalty or punishment, but because something within you says, I want to do what's right. And it seems like it's this. Essentially, that's what Romans chapter 7 is about. How how do do we get to this internal compass of what is right and what is wrong? Or when you think about it in terms of righteousness, which is the theme of the book of Romans, how do we really live in righteousness? What what becomes the motivator? Is it external? Is it internal? What, What is it? The book of Romans has taken us on a bit of a journey. Let me just set the stage as to where we are. Romans 1 was essentially about the gospel and God's righteousness being revealed. 
And then it turned in the latter part of Romans chapter 1 to the depravity of mankind and how God's righteous standard is something that none of us could meet, which is why Romans 3 says there's none righteous, not even one. The message of Romans 1 to 3 was God's holy, you're not, and that's a huge problem. Then in Romans 3.21 through chapter 5, we learned about God's solution. We discovered that the righteousness that God demands is actually a righteousness that he gives, and he gives it through his son, Jesus Christ. And that righteousness comes to those who believe in Jesus' work, that he does the work, and God applies it to our account, and we just believe that. And in the miracle of redemption, God wipes away all of our sin so that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then Romans 6 picks up on this scandal. The scandal is that when we sing, Jesus paid it all, it means that we have immunity from judgment. And not just all, like past all sins, but Jesus paid it all means all past, present, and future sins. That's the scandal. Everything's been forgiven. We're no longer under wrath. We're no longer under judgment. We have complete immunity from God's wrath because of the righteousness of Christ. And Those who hear this gospel correctly would say, wait a minute, if that's true, then you could just do whatever you wanted because you've got complete immunity. And that's why Romans 6 is written. Because Paul, in effect, says if that's how you think of grace, then you don't know what grace is. Because people who've tasted this kind of grace, they don't live under this banner of sweet. Now that I've got immunity, I can just do whatever I want. Now there's a, a new motivation Romans 6, we learn that believers are dead to sin and were alive to God in Jesus Christ. Then we come to Romans 7. And the question that Paul's going to wrestle with, and that we're going to wrestle with this week, next week, and in the week, um, the first week in December, is what is the connection between the law, this external standard, the believer's heart, righteousness, and how does all this relate to Jesus? And what are the implications of being under law and then being under grace in Romans 6 and verse 15? What does it mean that we have an internal obedience? These are the questions that we're going to try and wrestle with in Romans 7. Today we're going to talk at a pretty high level, rather philosophically, about the difference between the written law and the Spirit's law. And then next week we're going to see the connection between sin and this external law. What does the external law do to sin? And then finally, after Thanksgiving, first week of December, we'll see this internal battle that's taking place within the life of every believer. And as we go through Romans 7, you have to keep this question in the forefront of your mind. Where does the motivation for doing right, where does the motivation for righteousness come from? Parents, this is a very important question as you raise children. Because you, you can't always give them rules. And, and, and those rules only serve to surface that their hearts aren't there. And so this, this question, if you have believing children in your home, is how do we incorporate the talk about the Bible through Romans 7 so that our kids understand the internal motivator? If, if you're a child or a teenager or a kid in this room, you need to know that you got to move eventually from your parents just telling you what to do. And you got to move to embracing Christianity for yourself, embracing righteousness, so that you do what you're supposed to do because you want to, not just because you're worried about getting in trouble with your parents. So that your mom shows up, there's low-level fruit, your mom or dad shows up, they open the door to your room, and they're like, whoa, it's clean. What happened? 
And you're like, I wanted to. And then they're like, no way. You wanted to? I wanted to. I wanted to. I, just, I didn't just want disease and bacteria on the floor. I, I wanted to. I wanted to. Or you come home today and, and, and you, you clean up the dishes. The dishwasher is empty. And you say, I want to do this. That's like miracle of all miracles that happens. And that's what Romans 7 is talking about. Where does the motivation for righteousness come from? Now, this text starts at a very high level with a principle. And that principle is this, that death cancels the law's power. You can think of this like the principle of gravity. We're going to talk about how you live with gravity. But before we talk about how you live with gravity, we can talk about the principle of it, right? So if you throw a ball up in the air or a rock up in the air, the principle of gravity brings it down on your head. So living with the principle of gravity means that you ought not throw things up in the air that you don't expect to come down because it's going to come down because that's gravity. So there's a, a, a living in the, that world and there's also the principle form, the idea of gravity. And so the idea of what we're talking about today is this fact that death cancels the law's power. Why are we talking about the law? Well, look at chapter 6 and verse 14. Paul left this discussion in chapter 6. By saying, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So he, he throws out this idea back in chapter 6 of this new reality, this new, we said it before, this new constitutional authority that's for those who are in Christ. You're, you're no longer under law but under grace. So what does that mean? Verse 15 of chapter 6, he says, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. So Paul just says that and then in chapter 6, verse 16 to 23, he doesn't talk about the law anymore. In fact, he talks about slavery. And then in chapter 7, he picks up the idea again of law. So he's returning to something that he has mentioned before. Chapter 7, verse 1 says this, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives? There's the principle. And it's pretty simple. It's this, that the law only applies, or the power of the law only applies to living people. The law has coercive and punitive power. The law serves to motivate. All laws do. They all function in this way. They, they serve to motivate you to do what's right because of the threat of potential punishment. Without the threat of punishment, the law really has no power. Well, the challenge is, is if you're dead, the law has no ability to punish you, therefore the law no longer has any power. And somebody may have the law, but they really don't have any power if the person is in fact dead. An illustration from English Reformation. Some of you may know King Henry VIII. He had six wives. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. If you were a wife of King Henry VIII, or if you were a counselor, there was about a 9 in 10 chance that you were going to be beheaded or killed. Because King Henry loved to use treason as his way of getting his own way. For instance, he had an illegitimate child through Anne Boleyn. His name was Edward. He became king. And he passed a law throughout the land that if anyone suggested that Edward was the illegitimate child of King Henry VIII, that was, you were guilty of treason, and therefore you could be beheaded. He, he used this law over and over and over. So he wants to divorce his wife after 24 years, Catherine of Aragon, because she bore him no male heir. And so he appealed to the Catholic Church, 
And the cardinal in England at the time was the man by the name of Wolsey, and he could not broker a deal between the Catholic Church and King Henry VIII in order to secure the divorce of his 24-year marriage. And so he summoned Wolsey back to his palace, where he would certainly charge him with treason and would immediately have him beheaded. So Wolsey made his way down to see King Henry VIII, knowing full well what would happen. And in a great struck of luck, Wolsey died of natural causes along the way. And you can imagine the courier who comes in and says, King Henry, I have bad news for you. Wolsey died on the way. And at that moment, King Henry VIII has no power to behead him, no power to charge him with treason. Why? Because Wolsey is dead. There was another law even greater than King Henry's law, which is the law of life and death. You can't kill somebody. You can't behead them. You can't charge them with treason if they're already dead. Now, Bloody Mary tried that. She dug up some bones of Protestants, burned them um, posthumously um, in order to demonstrate that they were, in fact, heretics. But the fact of the matter is it really didn't matter. They were already dead. So the law only has power if you are alive. And what Paul is saying here is this exact principle that applies not only in the world in which we live, but also in a spiritual sense, that the law has power, but the law has a limit to its power, and the limit to its power is the life of those to whom the law applies. Now keep that in mind because we'll come back to it. I keep using the word law. What do I mean by it? That word, we need to define that because one of the challenges in interpreting Romans 7 is the word law, in the Greek there's no way to know if it's capital L or if it's lowercase l. There's just, there's really no way to tell that. And it's important in that is Paul referring to the principle of law in general or is he referring specifically to the Mosaic law? In other words, when we see in a moment that we've died to the law, well what law have we died to? What, what exactly have we been set free from? You might wonder, well, what's the big deal? The big deal is this, is if you read the Old Testament, two-thirds of your Bible, you have to ask yourself the question, how does the Old Testament relate to the New? And how do the Old Testament commands relate to the New? And when Paul says we've died to the law, what does he mean? That's, that's part, it's central to this question, and next week we'll take that up even more fully. But let me just give you an introduction to that. I think that the main thing that Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 7 is the Mosaic law. Now there are times when he refers to law in general. But the main thing I think he's referring to is the Mosaic Law. And there's three reasons why I think this is the case. First, in Romans 5 and verse 20, Mosaic Law is clearly in focus that the law increased sin. It wasn't just Roman law. It wasn't general law. It was the Mosaic Law. Secondly, Paul specifically mentions the Tenth Commandment in Romans 7, 7, which is part of the Mosaic Law. And third, in Romans 7, 12, he says that the law is holy. So clearly he must be referring to the Mosaic Law. Next week, the title of the message, Is the Law Bad, Good, or What? So we're going to wrestle with that. Today, I simply want you to see the point that death cancels the power of the law. Then what Paul does to make this point very clear is he uses an illustration, an illustration by virtue of the law of marriage. And like all illustrations, it's helpful in that it sheds light on what Paul is talking about, but at the same time, it isn't perfect. Look at verse Two. Thus a married woman is bound by law 
to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. You see the principle? Paul is saying here that when there's a law of marriage that governs their union of a husband and wife. But when that husband dies, there's a fundamental change to their relationship. The law of marriage no longer applies because one party has died. That death has canceled the power of that marriage law. That's the point. And then he continues negatively in verse 3. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man. So if while she's married, she goes and lives with another man who's not her husband, then she will be guilty of adultery because her husband is still alive. By the way, he's not talking about divorce and remarriage here. You, you, you can't use this text to talk about divorce and remarriage. That's Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 7. He's just using an illustration to talk about this idea of death and its connection to the power of law. But if her husband dies, this is verse 3, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Why? Because the power of that law has been canceled by the death of that particular spouse. So hopefully you can see that it's clear what Paul is trying to do here is to connect that the life of the parties involved is central to the power of that law. After death, the law is canceled The power of that law is no longer operative. So this text is about the difference between the written law and the law of the Spirit. And what Paul is arguing is that at a very high and philosophical level, according to verse 1, that the law is binding on a person only as long as you live. He illustrates this in marriage, and now he's going to apply it beginning in verse 4, and then 5, and then finally, which is the most important verse, verse 6. So there's three lessons here that I want you to see from this passage that relate to this issue of the law of the Spirit in Christ. These lessons are really important, especially if you're a new believer. This really is foundational to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Even if you're not a believer, this may help you understand why people that you know are followers of Jesus and what it means. And I hope that as I talk about this, if you're not a Christian yet, this would compel you. They may even see some things today that you've never seen before and know that God himself is is opening your eyes and wooing you towards the gospel. If you've been a believer a long time, this is a good reminder of some very basic things that need to be a part of your life and the lens through which you need to see the world. So this is very important and yet very basic. Verse 4, what Paul says is this. Here's lesson number 1, and that is this, that something spiritually significant happened to you. Verse 4, very important word, likewise. So after talking about law and death and the release of power, and then using the illustration of marriage, he links what follows in verses 4 to 6 with this word, likewise. Likewise, my brothers... You have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. This is one of those passages that would be very tempting to read very quickly and miss all kinds of really good stuff. This is a passage you need to read slowly. Do not eat this passage like a Big Mac. Eat it like a piece of filet mignon. Slowly savor it. Look at it. Chew on it and then talk about it. It's the best ever. Filet mignon is a piece of steak if you've never had one. And so, (laughs) some people are like, what's a filet mignon? You can't get it at McDonald's. All right. 
Five things. First, he says that believers have died to the law. You also have died to the law. So this is, this is a new thing for Paul to say. Previously, we heard talk about death, but it was that we had died to sin in Romans 6 and verse 2, or that we had shared in the death of Jesus. But this is a different nuance. Paul says here that believers in Jesus have a different relationship with the law, and the law no longer has power over them. It doesn't have the same kind of power that it had before because they have died to it. Secondly, this death came... Through the body of Jesus. He says, you have died to the law through the body of Jesus. It means that when a person receives Christ as their Savior, that something happens to them spiritually that's connected to what happened to Jesus physically. The reason that we celebrate communion and the reason we take a piece of bread is to remember the body of Jesus, that in his body he experienced death, and in that death he absorbed the wrath of God, that he became the punishment for sin, that in his death he satisfied the just requirements of the law. He died, and the Bible says that when you put your faith in Jesus, when you trust him, receive him as Lord and Savior, that God takes you and unites him to you and you in effect are so united to him that when he died you died that god considers his death to be your death that he considers that in the body of jesus you are now protected by the death of jesus in that he has not only paid for your sins but he has absorbed the wrath of god for you so the physical death becomes the satisfaction of the law's demands, so that if you're a follower of Jesus, you have perfectly satisfied the demands of the law, not because of you, but because of Jesus. That's why when we sang, Jesus paid it all, those words in that song are really important because it's Jesus paid it all, right? That's the confession of your life. He paid it all, and he did by virtue of his death. Third, it means now also that a believer now belongs to Jesus and not to the law. Look at what it says. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. He's picking up this marriage metaphor. It's not just that you died to the law, but now you belong to Jesus. It means that the spiritual death that happens to someone who comes to Christ not only breaks the power of the law by satisfying its demands, but it also means that you have a new relationship with Jesus such that you belong to him, that you have become something different, that you have been created something different. It means that everything about you now has the identity of Jesus. You were united to him in his death. He put over you his love. And now you belong to him. So that when the devil tempts you to do something that's wrong, you need to be reminded, no, I'm dead to that. And I belong to Jesus. And it means that when you stand before your creator at the end of days, a holy, righteous God, and you stand before him, the only protection in that day is not going to be your righteousness or what you did or your membership at a church or your baptism or all the things that you did. All those things may be wonderful after you've come to faith in Christ, but the only thing that matters on that day is that you belong to Jesus. That's the protection from the wrath of God because of Jesus and the fact that you belong to him. Something spiritually significant happened to you. It also means that you share in his resurrection. I mean, Paul just keeps going. To him who has been raised from the dead. That phrase describes to whom you belong. And what does he do? Here, 
know what he does? Death has power to it. And he says, look, there's even a greater power in the resurrection and you belong to the one who's been raised from the dead. It means that the law was not weak. The law wasn't weak. The law had all kinds of power and death was connected to that power in that law. And when Christ is raised from the dead, he not only identifies that he has conquered death, but if he's conquered death and if he is alive, it also means he fulfills all of the law demands and its power has been no longer rendered as operational over those who are in Christ Jesus. And then finally, I told you there's a lot in this text. In order that we may bear fruit for God. So, lest you think, wow, I'm united to Christ. I belong to Him. Jesus did all of this. It must be that the center of the universe is me. No. In fact, one of the greatest things I can tell you in all of the world is this. Life is not about you. The Bible goes great lengths to show us that my biggest problem is my wife. It's my kids. It's my mom. It's my church. It's my dad. It's my dog. I just had a better dog. Like, no, my problem is me. And some of you, it's going to take you a long time to figure that out. And and I hope you hear it today because you'll change relationships and jobs, careers, location. And you'll just keep trying different things. Martin Luther, great leader in the Protestant Reformation, thought he could run away to a monastery to escape sin. And yet he found it there because sin followed him. Because the problem of sin is that it is within. The end game, according to this text, is spiritual fruit that glorifies God. That's the end product. So why does God do all of us? He does this not because we are worthy. He does this because He is loving and kind and gracious and because He is worthy. That's the point. Verse 4 tells us that something spiritually significant happened to us. And then Paul, to make this point even more clear says this in verse 5, in effect, your former life did not work. So he paints this beautiful picture, and then as he often does, he goes back and says, and remember what your past life was like. We've heard something similar to this um, in chapter 6 and verse 21, when Paul asked, what fruit did you get at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? In other words, you know all the things that you're ashamed about? What fruit came out of that? And so this time, here's what he says. For while we were living in our flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. This is very similar to what Paul had said back in Romans chapter 6, verses 12 to 14, where he talks about the fact that we have this contender for the throne, namely sin. We have passions that are colluding agents that try and sneak in our desires. Then when they are uh, allowed to control us, end up creating wrong thoughts, wrong actions connected to specific body parts, our members, and then when we do that, it gives rise to death. But Paul had never mentioned the law before. Well, in this text, he does. He says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions 
Aroused by the law. There it is. Aroused by the law. This was not part of Romans 6, and Paul adds it here to connect our past and to this issue regarding the law. As we'll see next week, the law was not the problem. The law was only the fuel. It was only the catalyst. It it, it helped to show us as human beings, who we really were. What the law was, was a magnifier and a clarifier of the issue of sin. So as a family, we're back into basketball season, and one of the reasons that I love athletics, particularly why I love the sport of basketball, is because you put five young men on one side of the court and five young men on another side of the court, put two guys in the middle with striped jerseys who have a whistle and decide what the rules are, and then make them sweat and work hard and get physical, and it's amazing what comes out. It's a little microcosm of life as a kid can't believe that a ref called a foul on him or a coach can't believe what's happening on the court or a player is frustrated when he comes off the court. What happens is that that athletic environment, it surfaces what's lying dormant. And it's really good for a young man in particular to see what's down in there and to be in the car processing on the way home and going, hey, when a ref calls a foul on you, it's not cool to go, you know, or when the coach, when, when I was a, a basketball player and, and, and when the coach took me out, I was always mad because I always thought I needed to be in because I always thought I was better than everybody else. And it takes an athletic environment to surface that sometimes. And that's like what the law is. Basketball isn't bad. It's good, especially when you win. No, no. It's good in that it surfaces these things. So think of your life like a beaker. I've used this before with all these sediments in the bottom. And then something comes along and bumps it. And suddenly now all these, these, these things come out. Those of you who have children under the age of five, your children bump your beaker. Right? You have no idea how upsetting little children can be. How could little aliens in my home create these things in me? They don't create it. It was already there. They just make it come out. What does Paul say? He says, your former life did not work. It bore the fruit of death. Listen, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, when I say it bore the fruit of death, what do I mean by that? I mean that when you're the center of your own universe and you're just living for you, you make a mess of everything. You you tank relationships People can't handle being around you because you, you want and want and want and want. It's ne- there's never enough money. There's never enough love. There's never enough affirmation. There's never enough sexuality. There's never enough affirmation. You're just like a, a, a giant emotional vacuum cleaner sucking all of these things up because there is this thing in your soul that only God was meant to fulfill. And the hope of the gospel is that Jesus settles you, he fulfills you, and he puts you on a new path. That's what Paul's talking about. So what does he say finally? Here, here's here's what this text essentially is about. Verse 6 is pater on this passage. Everything leads us up to this verse. But now, we are released from the law, released from the law, we'll talk about that more next week, having died to that which held us captive. So that's what verses 1 through 5 were all about. And then here it is. So that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. That's the point. The problem is is that for many of us, we have no idea what that means. 
Because the reality is when you think of Christianity, you think of God the Father and God the Son, and you live in a two-person trinity instead of a three-person, and you don't really understand how the Spirit relates to your life and to your walk. What does it mean, the new way of the Spirit? First, it means this, that what was promised in the Old Testament has now been inaugurated in the new. What was promised in the old? What was promised in the old is there's coming a day when it won't always be about rules. There's coming a day when God will take his rules and he'll write them on our hearts and we'll want to do the right things. Now, as you'll see, in three weeks from now, there's still this tension. Sometimes I want to do right, sometimes I want to do wrong. What do I do with this? And the gospel has an answer to that. But the fact of the matter, now there is a new way, a new way of thinking, a new way of living, as predicted and prophesied in the book of Ezekiel. He says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Listen to me. That promise is right now. Right now. You have, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have what the Old Testament saints long to be able to see and experience. That you have the personal presence of the mediated Christ in your life by virtue of the Holy Spirit. It means now that the new covenant has been brought to bear. And as Paul moves into Romans chapter 8, you're going to see the Spirit show up over and over and over again. For instance, Romans 8, 2. Listen to what Paul says. This is Romans 8, 1. There is therefore no now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's verse 1. Here's verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You see the Spirit? Or Romans 8, 4. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. Or Paul says in Romans 8, 12, Brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. God hasn't given us a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear again. He's given us the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And it's all related to the Spirit. The problem is that so many believers, the Spirit isn't even on their radar. It's part of this new covenant to be Indwell with the Spirit, secondly, means that you have a new ability to obey, not just because you have to, but because you want to. That's what he changes. Where the law used to make you mad, now it makes you glad. You hear me say something like, you're not the center of the universe. And you're like, yes, yes, yes. And ten years ago, you would have been like, you're an idiot for saying that. I am the center of the universe. And something happened. And you celebrate, yes, I'm not the center of the universe. That is not normal. Tell a child, honey, it's not about you. They will say, mine, mine, mine. No child walks around the house going, yours, 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 share, share, share. It's just not normal. At least not in my house. Third, to live by the law of the Spirit means that what is produced in your life It's a very unusual fruit because you've come to love God and His grace. So now there's a new motivation for obedience. The kind of actions that would have been impossible before are now possible 
because of God's presence by His Spirit in your life. So suddenly you find yourself loving people who used to tick you off. You have compassion for people when before you had nothing but impatience, such that the Bible says this in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and don't forget the rest of that verse, against such there is no law. Why no law? Because the Spirit fulfills the law. If you're a parent, you have kids, you're taking a long trip, and you know the back seat battles that are going on? Everyone, you, you, you put tape on the seats, here's your 17 inches, don't go on this side, don't go on this side. You have all these rules in your car, no one talks for the first 15 minutes, no angry words. Can you imagine if there just was, what if there was, there was no laws like that, no, no tape on the seats, it just was this environment of we're just going to love one another for 15 hours in the car. You laugh because it's so unusual, right? And it is. It's impossible unless the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in the middle of that car. And when that happens, you'll know there is no law. There's no law of your arm going back like this. There's no law. You're looking in the mirror. No law of, hey, you kids, there's none of that. And DVDs and VCRs and and headsets won't solve it. You need a new law, which is the law of the Spirit. Oh, how many times my wife and I have prayed over our kids said, Lord... We can't. We can set the boundaries, but we can't reach their hearts. We, we can't. You have to move. So come. Holy Spirit, come. We need you to empower their lives because it's what the Spirit of God does. And finally, it means that with this Spirit, you actually experience that which is truly life. Here's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Oh, you want life in your marriage? You want life in your relationships? You want life in your humanity? You want life in your money? You want life in your sexuality? You want life in your gender? You know where all that comes from? It comes from ordering those things back in line with that which is truly life, which is those things embedded with the Spirit of God since they function the way God intended for them to function in the first place. Listen, church, we need to recapture the essence of what it means to be human Identity was something, it's a Christian term. To be united with Christ and to be filled with the Spirit means that you're a different person, that there's a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. It means that embedded into your relationships and your money and your aspirations and your dreams and your communication and your gender and your sexuality is this new motivator which is the spirit of the risen christ that says we're going to use every part of our humanity to glorify the one who paid it all that's what it means to be a christian so if you're not a christian today this this is my call my offering to you is this you you have not lived Bouncing from relationships to relationships, trying to figure out how to deal with your past and your sin. You've tried so many things. You, you don't need another program. You don't need more people in your grill. You don't need a new job. You don't need a change of location. What you need is a new heart. And the only one who can give that to you is Jesus. And when he does, it doesn't mean everything changes instantly. But it means that something foundationally changes in that moment, which is your heart 
is suddenly made new. And you have new appetites, new longings, new desires that would have never been there had you not come to faith in Christ. And so I implore you today, if you don't know Jesus, to come. Turn away from your old life. What fruit did that get you? What shame did that produce? It's time to come. And no matter what you've done or how far you've gone, there is room at the cross because Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. All. He paid all of it. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to facilitate the work of the Spirit in your life. You need to throw yourself into the stream of His grace which is why you read the Bible. Don't read the Bible like it's an encyclopedia. Read it like it is. It's the voice of God speaking to you. Tomorrow morning, when you read, before you read, open the Bible and say, Spirit, speak to me today. I'm tired of dry words on a page. I need you to speak to me. You walk into your job, have this mindset. I'm here on a mission from the Spirit of the living God. I want you to control my mind and my mouth and my heart. To realize that the personal presence of Christ is mediated through worshiping together. You'll be better equipped to do that because you've worshiped together today. You'll be better able to do that because you meet in small groups together and talk about God's work in your life. These are the things that the Spirit does. So my call to you, if you're a follower of Jesus, is to open your life to the Spirit because this is what it means to truly live. Listen, you don't need another law. You're in trouble you're, you're spiritually stagnant. You don't need more accountability, as good as that is. You don't need someone to get in your grill. You don't need another book. What you need to do is say, Jesus, I am so sorry, and I need you, Holy Spirit, to fill me again and to help me, because I've tried to run and run and run and run, but I can't do it anymore, and I just need you to help me. Please help me. And he'll come and help you in ways you can't even imagine. One of my favorite quotes because it's so clear, it's from John Bunyan who said this, Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Greater news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. So here's my call, fly, follower of Jesus, fly as you embrace the beauty of what it means for the spirit of the risen Christ to rule your life. So, Father, help us now, because having heard your words, and having been in a room where we've sung great truths, we've been together, we've laughed, we've cried, we've experienced a full range of emotions, and now we leave back into the world another week to parenting and jobs and school and temptations and challenges. So help my beloved church to run well this week, not trusting in themselves, but running by the authority of the Spirit. In thousands of moments across this city, would you allow the Word of God to be opened, and would you, Spirit, speak as people say, here I am, Lord, and I'm hungry, and I want to hear from you, so Spirit, help me, help me. So help us be a people who are led by the Spirit of God, and filled by the Spirit of God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.